0: We shall meet, but we shall miss him. There will be one vacant chair. We shall linger to caress him While we breathe our evening prayer. When a year ago we gathered Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at around 100 pages of the works of great American writers using the wonderful Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be looking at the second 100 pages of Louisa May Alcott's novel Little Women. We have just started a new series in this podcast looking, I'll look at three of the novels of by Louisa May Alcott, the Little Women Trilogy, starting with Little Women, then with Little Men, and then finally Joe's Boys. If you're just joining us, I encourage you to go back one episode and listen to the previous one where I introduce the novel, I talk about the author, uh, Miss Alcott, and the setting as well as look at the first eight chapters. In the second 100 pages of Little Women, winter begins to give way to summer, Spring and summer, but the Marsh family begins to face some harsh realities about life. Uh, the, some of the daughters are growing up and starting to have to make starting to make big decisions about where their future will lie. Disease affects the local area and hits uh, close to home, threatening two of the girls. Word comes also that the father, Mr. Marsh, who was serving in the Union Army as a chaplain, has been has taken ill and requires Mrs. Marsh to leave for Washington, leaving the girls at home with a broader network of support their aunt um, the neighbors the lawrences and others in fact two members of the March family find their lives at serious risk and only one of these two will survive to the end of the novel so these risks are very real as I said in the previous episode I think one of the major themes of this novel it's not just, it's not, you know we, it's not just about growing up it's also about growing up and facing death and the actuality of death and death was something that people faced in especially during the civil war this novel was written in 1968 or so but it is set during the civil war when many if not most american families faced death especially in the south but even in the north most american families faced some risk of of death either through disease or other things so um as I said in the last episode, the major themes of this novel are loss, family, cooperation, and individualization. And I think by the end of the second hundred pages, we'll be able to add a few new themes to this work. All of these themes that I just mentioned are revisited in this part of the novel in, in various ways. So let's just jump into it. And again, go back to listen to the first episode if you really don't know what happens in the early part of the novel. I'm just going to continue where I left off with, with chapter nine. Chapter nine: Meg goes to Vanity Fair. Now, something we see, especially in the early, actually throughout the whole novel, is Alcott will focus on different characters. But, you know, usually one of the four girls in each of her chapters, and sometimes there'll be the interactions between girls, and sometimes all four will be on stage. There's actually a couple of chapters here where all four are given prominent positions, but usually she's going to focus on one of the girls and you know develop her. Her interests, and and especially how she's going to grow up into into a woman, because maturation is another important theme, obviously. Even though all these characters are still girls, some of them are closer to womanhood, and that's more on their minds. And one of those is Meg. Meg's the character who's really the closest to being being a woman. Have to worry about marriage and or perhaps a career, but you know, for Meg, it, it's marriage is what's on her mind. Uh, and her broader social network is going to be the conduit to that and that's really what chapter nine is about Meg goes to Vanity Fair Meg wants to visit uh, Annie Moffat the Moffats are kind of sideline characters that exist throughout they' they're more wealthy they're they're well they're fairly well off in fact that's a common theme too in this novel is that because the marsh has sort of been knocked down a peg due to uh, the war and due to other the misfortunes that happened before the novel began but they still have a network and they know people who are still quite rich and quite well off. So this novel's about Meg you know starting to think about who she's going to marry and who might be who who might be her suitors but also it's about class and the anxieties of the elder Marshall having to face richer acquaintances off with her humble dress and it's a very banal thing we might think but for her it's very important so, you know, the concerns that adults have sometimes don't, you know, are seem more serious. But from a child's point of view, for a young woman's point of view, and as in Meg's case, you know, something like just how you look in front of your friends can be a very traumatic experience. So she packs for this trip and is gonna she's gonna actually go on these different dinner parties and parties and things and dancing and and kind of interact with men. And partially this is about her courtship, her beginning to meet men that she might marry someday. She's worried that her clothing will not be adequate for the people she'll meet. She ends up borrowing some clothes from her, the people she's staying with to go to parties, and she rather likes it, but she's still somewhat embarrassed by the situation. And at the end of the chapter, Meg begins to come to know rumors that she's being groomed for marriage to Lori. Lori's the grandson of the neighbor, Mr. Lawrence, who was born in Europe, but, you know, is kind of homeschooled. And he's still being homeschooled, but now by his grandpa and a tutor, Mr. Brooke. And he's a very interesting character because he's kind of put at various times as a possible suitor to all four of the Marsh girls. And so it starts out, he's might be Meg, you know, they're, they're kind of paired up here in rumor, more, and more in rumor than in reality. And then the reader wants him to be with Joe. Eventually he marries Amy, but there's even hints that maybe Beth's his the one he could have been with, but that's various parts of the story. And we'll get to that. But at this point, it's it's kind of the rumors are that Laurie and Meg are being sort of set up by the families to be married. And she's being groomed for this marriage to him. And she talks to her mother about these rumors because she's kind of un- made uncomfortable by them. And she, Mrs. Marsh, her mother, tells her what she thinks about marriage and all that stuff. Marriage and family and the future and really what what are the plans really that's what she's approaching her mom about like what are your plans are you plotting behind my back so you know basically she says yes my dear i have a great many plans that is all mothers do but my understanding for somewhat from mrs Moffat's i suspect i will tell you some of them for the time has come when a word might set your romantic little heart head and heart of yours outright on a very serious subject you're very you are young meg but not too young to understand me and mother's lips are the fittest to speak at such things to girls like you Joe, your turn will come, perhaps, so listen to my plans and help me carry them out if they are good. I want my daughters to be beautiful, accomplished, and good, to be admired, loved, and respected, and to have happy youth, as well as to be well and wisely married, and to lead useful, pleasant lives, with as little care and sorrow to try them as God sees fit to send. To be loved and chosen by a good man is the best and sweetest which can happen to a woman. And I sincerely hope my girls may know this beautiful experience." It is natural to think of it, Meg, right to hope for it and wait for it, and wise to prepare for it, so that when your time comes, you may feel ready for your duties and worthy of the joy. My dear girls, I am ambitious for you, but do not have you make a dash in the world. Marry rich men merely because they are rich or have splendid houses which are not homes because love is wanting. Money is needful and precious thing and when well used, a noble thing. But I never want you to think it is the the first or only prize to strive for And of course, I don't want to keep going here because it, 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 it goes on even farther beyond this but that's the the she's she's basically saying that you need to find a friend you need to find someone who's a real companion for you not just marry for money and so not telling Meg not to be distracted by all this rumor and gossip and all the focus on on dress and custom and all, all these things that she's facing in you know at these parties that she was attending Okay, so the next chapter is called the PC and the P.O. Now, what do those acronyms stand for? Um, I think PC is Poet's Corner. No, that's PC is Poet's Corner. What was the P.O.? I forget. Anyway, Anyways, this chapter is about the girls' creativity and their individuality coming through their efforts basically to playwright a local newspaper called the Pickwick Papers. It, it's not a real newspaper it's it's just them writing things and writing things out and pasting them to you know together kind of etching out a newspaper i mean they don't have the technology or the resources to actually print out something you know kids now can do this with computers but they didn't so it's just their handwriting but you'd think that this is like joe's place to really shine because she's the writer and she's going to be the writer and she's the most talented with words but all the girls contribute to this newspaper And the newspaper actually, or they create this alter ego for each of the girls. And they print these stories, they print ads, they print news, and they publish and put out other ephemeral. So Meg goes by the name of Samuel Pickwick, the oldest, the one the newspaper is named for. Joe goes by Augustus Snodgrass, Beth is Tracy Tipman, and Amy is Nathaniel Winkle. Notice these are all male names. Well, Tracy Tipman could be a girl's name, but it's pretty much assumed it's a man. So these are all male names because the publishing world is, is exclusive to women at this time and here you have girls sort of making fun of that and stepping into this world but they have to do it, they have to put on the man's hat in order to do that. Um, and this will be a theme that comes up a little bit in Little Men and Joe's Boys, no, especially no, in Joe's Boys where like a, one of the male characters is able to become a journalist and there's also girls who want to achieve more than what's been kind of set out for them. Um, so the girls can only imagine men running a newspaper. So they have to put on this kind of male hat. But nevertheless, what's in the newspaper they print, and most of the chapter is just the reprinting of this effort at a, one issue of this newspaper, shows that there's they kind of filter in like feminist issues here. But they're all revealed to be very creative and individuals in what they produce. So these newspaper efforts are um, we see each girl expressing herself in a very unique way. So it's not just dominated by Joe. That's the point quote. The P.O. was a capital little institution and flourished wonderfully for nearly as many queer things passed through it as through a real office tragedies and cravats poetry and pickles garden seeds and long letters music and gingerbread rubbers, invitations, scoldings, and puppies. The old gentleman liked the fun and amused himself by sending odd bundles, mystery messages, and funny telegrams. And his gardener, who was smitten with Hannah's charms, actually sent a love letter to Joe's care. How they laughed when the secret came out, never dreaming how many love letters that little post office would hold in the years to come. So all this chapter also shows all the girls growing up in substantial ways, or at least envisioning how they're gonna grow up. Beth writes about her gardening. Now Beth is a character I find a bit frustrating in this novel because we have all these really strong girls, especially Joe and Amy are really strong-willed. Meg, she's the oldest. She's strong-willed too, but she's kind of doing the conventional path of getting married. But she marries for love, not getting set up or whatever. Now Beth is... She doesn't marry, and she dies quite young, but she's the most domesticated of all the characters. She's very quiet. She's often very sickly. So this the image that the male the male gaze has on the American woman at this time is that she's weak, very passive, dwells in the home, maybe some artistic talent, but not really an ambition to do anything about it. And Beth can play music, but there's never any suggestion that she's actually going to be a professional musician or something. Her music is of the home. So Beth is this most domesticated and she's like the snapshot of the of I guess white white male America's view of what women should be like I guess or kind of the a grotesque caricature almost of, of the ideal woman Meg is maybe more the the picture perfect image of the ideal woman and then Amy and Joe being the troublemakers uh, but by Beth being a gardener she's she's kind of no pun intended cultivating that that image. Joe writes her stories and poems Meg writes on marriage and Amy eventually she writes a letter to the editor here but this reveals her fondness for troublemaking so yes the girls in this chapter are making fun of elite pretensions in in the way they kind of poke fun at these elite cultures and the, the, the literary cultures but they're also pursuing their individual roles that they envision for themselves and their advertisements that they print of course they're all sort of made up but they they hide a more feminist posturing. For instance, we have a weekly meeting will held at a kitchen place to teach young ladies how to cook. Hannah Brown will be presiding or invited to attend. So that's more traditional. But we got this other one. Miss Ortheny Blugard, the accomplished strong-minded lecturer, will deliver her famous lecture on women and her position in the Pickwick Hall next Saturday afternoon, after the usual performances. So there, so th- there's some interesting themes in here, and I think it's it's one of the moments where, where Alcott's being a little more overtly feminist. Um, so next we have experiments. Now this is a really fascinating chapter about idleness. Work becomes a bigger theme in the second part of of this book. You had it a little bit in the first part too, because after the Christmas break they all have to kind of go back to work and they grumble about it, right? Now. You know the the thing i need to deal with here is does this novel just reassert and push the work ethic there's times where it seems it does that and this is one of those chapters that seems to do that but i I think it's more complex than just saying young women if they want to grow up right should work hard Um, but this is the chapter about idleness basically what happens is that all four of the girls find themselves in a position to be idle and so they're just feel some of them just feel a little bit lazy and they decide to just take a week off from work, and they stop doing the functions they normally do. I think it starts out that Meg doesn't have to go to work, and then others kind of follow her lead and stop doing their tasks, too. Beth and Amy are being homeschooled. Joe reads to Aunt Marsh and has other duties. The older women, Hannah and and Mrs. Marsh, decide to go on strike too to prove a point. That is, that the house, Hannah, by the way, is the, the assistant, the, the servant in the house they all sort of go on strike too to prove a point. That is that the house needs a bit of work every day to function. So yes, there is a statement about the work ethic that if everyone is completely idle, bad things will happen. But it's also undermined by the sheer pleasure that the girls find themselves in. And that's not condemned as unvaluable. The solution is not a lot of work and drudgery, but rather a bit of work properly applied, you know, doing what you need to do shared equally among the girls so there's this theme here too that the work has to be shared more equitably so it's a the work ethic here is is certainly exists but it's a very particular type um, more of a egalitarian type of work ethic I would say she says this is her lesson right so as I said last time some of these chapters are a bit like sitcom episodes where it ends with this didactic lesson of sorts but she says, while Hannah and I did your work, you got along pretty well, though I don't think you were very happy or amiable. So I thought, as a little lesson, I would show you what happens when everyone thinks only of herself. Don't you feel that it's pleasanter to help others, to have daily duties which make leisure sweet when it comes, and to bear or forbear that home may be comfortable and lovely to us all? End quote. So it's not about the work ethic as just drudgery. It's 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 about sharing the tasks that need to be done. Okay, next we get a, a really a rather difficult chapter in some ways. Not, none of these chapters are really difficult, but one of the more complex ones thematically in terms of plot. Um, chapter 12, Camp Lawrence. In this chapter, we see the family's friendship with the Lawrences really branch out from their social network, and it, it's much more about the people around the marshes than the marshes themselves. And we see a lot of pressure put on them to meet the standards of these other people. Essentially, Laurie invites the girls to a picnic with many other people, including the Mofets who Meg met before, and others, some European acquaintances of the Lawrences. And Meg is kind of seen as low class because she works as a governess and a bit embarrassed about that, and there's a lot of judging by the Europeans about the Americans, and even this very condescending tone at times, like, oh, you American girls aren't so bad, or that kind of thing that's this kind of european elitist attitude that americans are backwards and and humble and vulgar and and this gets thrust onto these girls rather unfairly and one of the ones who suffers the most is meg because she's the one i guess who's everyone's eyes are on as the one who is going to kind of venture out on her own soon and maybe get married now the one who sort of backs her up is mr brooke who's laurie's tutor and will the marry so he starts to catch meg's eye know or he starts to pay more attention to Meg at this point and and stands up for her now I noticed that much of the condescension that the marsh goats face does come from Europeans in this chapter so I, I wonder if there's more to say about this elite European perspective on Americans and how maybe in the mid 19th century Americans still weren't really being seen as fully civilized by many many Europeans I'd have to look more broadly into travel literature eventually someday get to William James, not William James, uh, Henry James and and think more about this European American connection at this time. Chapter 13, castles in the air. Of course, castles in the air are are these dreams, right? Our dreams people have. What happens is Lori butts into the girls' playing time. They're playing, the girls are playing their busy bee society, and they're still playing together. Now that's something that's going to end eventually because Meg is going to get married and Joe is going to leave and in the second half of the novel they start to break up. But at this point they're still together and playing together. And Lori wants to play too and he's kind of the older boy. He's more Joe's age, right? So there's a bit of a age gap, but and it, how do I want to say this? So when kids play together, you know, it's sometimes the older kids want to do more older kid things and they'll exclude the younger kids. But sometimes they'll play more collectively. In that case, they kind of lowest common denominator play. Like they'll, the older kids will, will act like they're younger kids and play things they may have used to like to play, right? It's like if you're playing board games and the youngest kid is five, you have to play Candyland, right? Yeah, even if the older kids never would play Candyland. Lori's also older, so he's also... Kind of joining this more kind of younger type of game they're playing, but there's a bit of a debate here over letting Laurie enter the club at all, the society. But eventually, they deem him to be kind of a good enough of friend to be allowed. And I think Joe's the one who says, "No, we got to let him in. You know, he's he's our good Laurie." And then eventually, the main point of this chapter is they discuss their dreams, and we pretty much know what the dreams of the girls are, so we don't have to go through those, but. Obviously, Meg wants to marry and have a good family, and Joe wants to be a writer, and Amy wants to be an artist, and, and Laurie says he wants to be a musician. And this is setting up that maybe he could have a future with Beth, who is also a musician, but Laurie's depressed because he knows that his future dreams will be stopped by his grandfather, who has very different plans for him. And Joe says, no, 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 you should follow your dreams and just run away. And Meg says... Well, you should work within the family to maximize his potential and running away would be a really stupid thing to do. You'd basically burning those bridges, which you need as a foundation for building to your future. So there's this difference in these perspectives between these two older girls about the future for Lori. Now, Beth is the real problematic one here because she has the most limited dreams. Now, knowing she'll die, knowing that she's going to have this tragic end makes this perhaps understandable. But... She is really conforming to the standard expectation of of American women. So let me read this for you. Let me read Beth's dream. She says, Mine is to stay at home, safe with father and mother, and help take care of the family. Don't you wish for anything else? Asked Lori. Since I have my little piano, I am perfectly satisfied. I only wish that we may all keep well and be together. Nothing else. So that's all. That's what we hear from her about her dream. It's 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 not an individual dream. It's it's this gendered ideology that she's parodying off. And again, I think it's almost a a a, a perversion of it or an exaggerated stereotype of this this ideal. Meg's more of the real conventional um, woman. Anyways, uh, the other interesting thing in this chapter is this different strategy that Joe and Mac give Laurie about how to deal with the fact that he's not getting this chance to be fulfilled in the institution. So dreams and institutions are the theme of this chapter. right? What's the best way for these children to reach their dreams and articulate them? Is it running away or is it staying within our institutions? you know for young people it's family is the big one or church perhaps but usually it's family and community do you stay there is that where you build it all from and this is going to be an issue i think in in the little men and joe's boys books as well we these boys go off now, now they're going to have more freedoms than, the, than these girls it's a little bit easier for them to, to to venture out but you know there it is chapter 14 secrets uh, there's actually two secrets in this chapter. Um, one is the secret of Joe, who submits some of her stories to be published in a local newspaper, and she publishes them. Eventually, they are published, and they're published under her name, and she doesn't get paid for them. But she's hoping that someday she'll be get paid. So she's like, next time I'll be paid. But she just wanted to see her work in print, so she sent it off to the local newspaper. Lori, though, the more substantial secret is that lori is keeping a secret that basically mr brooke is falling for meg and the evidence of this is that he keeps a glove of hers around in his pocket at all times and joe has to bite her tongue around meg about this secret so these secrets these two that they're both secrets joe has one is the secret about mr brooke and the other is about her own effort to get published these are adult secrets and they resemble her real progress towards her adulthood Chapter 15, a telegram. So yeah, there's been a lot has happened at these girls by in the first 14 chapters. A lot we could talk about, right? But the main, if you want a, like a brutish plot, if you, if you want a, a straight fun story, there isn't much to say, right? That it's just these young or the girls of different ages um, hanging out in their house during the Civil War, hoping their father doesn't get killed going to work, being educated. Yeah, they, they interact around, but there's really no trajectory yet for a lot of these characters. It starts to change with chapter 15, where the story becomes much more plot driven and more things start to happen. So it becomes a little bit more action oriented in the plot. And te- the telegram is really where this starts. The plot really does stick in here. The telegram they get, the Marshes get, reveal that Mr. Marsh has taken ill, that he's sick. It's not really clear what it is. It's a telegram, so it's just like one line. It's like, he's sick, you got to come. Mrs. Marsh must go to Washington, D.C. With, with little delay, right? They don't have much money to travel. She's worried she's going to have to travel alone. The neighbors, though, work together to help prepare her for her journey. Lori offers up Mr. Brooke, his tutor, as a traveling companion, which he he does. And then Joe sells her hair to pay for the trip. So I think she gets like 20 bucks or something for this, which is going to help pay for it. And, you know, she didn't have that money. And this is, of course, where Amy says her famous line, you know, that's your one beauty. Joe faces this loss very stoically in public, but later on at the end of the novel, she's caught crying over her hair and she feels really bad about having lost her hair. Now, this is an important sacrifice because the loss of her hair must be a real sacrifice to matter. If Joe... You know it really is just a tomboy who doesn't care about her hair it wouldn't have mattered that she got a cut so it has to be a significant sacrifice and it's revealed at the end of that it is despite how she presented it in public and she's one of the characters who we can't really point to a big sort of sacrifice she made for others that's a big theme of these novels but you know Joe has has, and sometimes been quite selfish especially towards Amy uh, to a few others you now mr. Lawrence gives a piano to Beth I guess all the girls gave part of their Christmas meal, breakfast to the neighbors. Um, but many of the other characters have done real sacrifices for others, but not so much Joe yet. So this is Joe's effort to really step forward and do something great for her family. Um, becoming an adult and understanding the importance of the greater good. And that that greater good requires some sacrifice. Chapter 16, Letters. In this one, we... This chapter is just the communications between Mrs. Marsh and the girls through letters. In fact, it's, I think it's five or six, six letters, I guess, from the Marshes. And then Lori sends one and Mr. Lawrence sends one. And they all, they're sent off to Mrs. Marsh. And it's just a nice little way to revisit each of these girls in turn and get a little window into into their mentality and what they're thinking at this point in the story. So Meg is very straightforward, just telling kind of business joe is very flowery and very poetic she even includes a poem in there called the song from the suds so kind of a poem she wrote while she was in the bathtub or something baths is short enough that i can read in full so you can get an idea it's, it's a bit hard to describe but it's it kind of really goes back to this theme of what beth is in this story and is she presented just as the passive uh american woman the ideal of the separate spheres ideology quote there's only one room for me to send my there's only room for me to send my love and some press pansies on the roof i've been keeping safe from the house for father to see i read every morning try to be good all day and sing myself to sleep with father's tune i can't sing land of the leal now it makes me cry everyone is very kind and we are happy as we can be without you amy wants to re- rest on the page so i must stop i didn't forget to cover the holders I wind the clock and air the rooms every day. Kiss dear father on the cheeks he calls mine. Oh, do come soon to your loving little Beth. Now this is after, so she's saying, I don't have enough room to write more and express myself more. This is after Joe wrote this really long letter where she included this very long obnoxious poem. Um, Amy's is fun to read because it's all misspelled and the grammar and punctuation is wrong. Um, Oh, we got Hannah. She puts a little bit. Lori and Mr. Lawrence also include letters here. So it's just a nice way of of kind of going around and checking on these characters and where they're at and, and what they're feeling. Chapter 17, Little Faithful. So this is a chapter about Beth. So after hearing so little from Beth in letters, we get a lot of her in Chapter 17. Now, the girls are a little bit lazy with Mother gone, um, but one of their jobs is they're supposed to visit the Hummels once in a while, the poor German family living nearby. Beth goes, and then the next day she goes again because none of the other girls volunteer to go. And then rather than pushing them on that, she just decides to go and be quiet about it. She just, you know, bears her burden. Now, this is a really important moment in the novel because the laziness of the other girls, especially Joe and, and Meg, And particularly Joe. I mean, Joe's the one who really kind of carries the moral burden for this in the the novel. Because she's the one who could have gone. I think she was supposed to that that day. Anyways, what happens is Beth is exposed to scarlet fever while she's there. One of the Hummel children actually died during one of Beth's visits. And, you know, again, Beth here is presented as the woman who has to do her duty when others don't do it. and And she pays the price for it. So this, this is the lesson Alcott's prep giving is is women actually bear this burden quietly without complaint. And men often they die and suffer horribly because of the way this ideology about women's role in society, how powerful it is. Amy, of course, is the one Marsh girl who hadn't been exposed to scarlet fever before. So she must also be sent away. she's sent to aunt Marsh's as basically as the quarantine while Beth. Is looked after as a doctor and hopes that she'll get better so Amy suffers as well because of this she has to kind of live with this older relative and her only playmate is a parakeet or a parrot actually it's quite intelligent it, it says like whole sentences I, I don't know if that's believable if to me I, I kind of doubted it but there it is it's a it's a well-trained parrot chapter 18 dark days so this is a real test for the family in this chapter because it, they, Beth starts to get worse. She doesn't seem to get better and they start to worry she dies. They write Mrs. Marsh telling her to come home. Joe comes to learn of her deep love for Beth and she confesses this to Lori. She f- finds that she can't really face her guilt and you know, face Beth's possible death. At this point in the novel, she can't. Now, later on in the novel, she's going to have to. But at this point, she's, she's unable to really face it and she comes to know how much she loves Beth. Now, death has been a theme of this novel from the beginning, but it is now facing the Marsh family from two directions in this chapter. One is from Beth, right there at home, and the other is Mr. Marsh in Washington, which they don't really got any news from. You know, if he's getting better, you know, something bad could happen to him. But at the end of the chapter, we learn that Beth is recovering, and Mrs. Marsh arrives home to good news, not bad news. So, that's, 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 fine however this threat of illness Beth never fully recovers from this illness and she's going to be sickly for the rest of the novel um it's kind of like now I don't know how scarlet fever works if if it was I don't think the disease that she has kind of th- for the rest of the novel is another like years where she's supposed to be sickly I don't know if it's revealed that this is just the carryover of the scarlet fever or some other disease but or just her overall sick and sickliness or her constitution got weakened And she never fully recovered. But anyways, at this point, Beth has recovered. And then chapter 19, Amy's will. So this chapter is mostly about Amy's boredom and the labor she faces. Aunt Marsh puts her to work. She doesn't really like doing that. And she doesn't really have much company. Her company is really the servant of the house, Esther. And she talks to Amy about religion and prayer. And she gets a slightly different point of view about religion from Esther, who's a a Catholic. So she, you know, the Marsh family is Protestant, they're quite religious, but, you know, Esther provided a kind of a, a window into religious diversity for Amy, something she she didn't really realize existed, and they talk about prayer and things like that, and how she prays. Amy, though, begins to think about her own possible death, and she eventually she writes up a will in which, in case she dies, and she gets Lori to actually witness the will, and it's a nice little moment, and it's kind of cute. But Amy here is revealing an awareness that she might die, but also she's willing to give up some of her toys and her gifts and her possessions to each of her sisters. And she shows her awareness and her sensitivity to what they like, what they desire and what's of interest to them. So it's a very, very sweet moment um, where this character who's kind of a troublemaker and a bit rambunctious and at times presented as a bit too free, you know, shows her capacity to sacrifice for, for others. So that's all I'll talk about uh, in this episode. Um, I'm going to do five episodes on Little Women, but it's in two parts, so the next episode I'm going to kind of have to bridge part one and part two, but that'll be fine. Uh, But most of what happens in part one is kind of already done. There's going to be the return of Mr. Marsh, but there's not much. Mostly, I think we can spend the next episode building up what happens in the second half of the novel. Um, But what are some of the themes here? Uh, Some of the themes I've already talked about are, are still here, about the importance of generosity, the threat of death individualization of especially through these different girls but we have some new themes brought up here and expressed more directly such as work and idleness you know what is the value of work and what is its purpose and and what is the right balance between work and idleness and play and community these are all tensions in this part of the novel for these girls and they have to learn how to balance them and then I think another interesting thing going on here is the importance of female female relations and how this transitions to the, like, the female-male relations. You start the novel, it's all the girls, and there's, the man is not even there, right? Dad's gone, you get a letter from him, but that's it. And all the interactions are between girls, and yeah, you have Lori, but he's kind of on the side. And this is, in this part of the novel, beginning to transition to more and more female-male relations. You see where the girls allow Lori to come into their club all okay, right, what are some of the other relations? Well, so Meg in relationship with Mr. Brooke begins to develop. Joe is developing this friendship with Lori. You have Mrs. Marsh returning to her husband. In all these ways, we see the male-female relationship becomes more pronounced in this part of the novel, and it will continue to work that way until by the end of the novel, the girls are, I won't say alienated from each other, but you know the women have all gone their own way and men are going to be a big part of their lives from the future on and that exclusively female environment that they grew up in you know proves to be a temporary thing so that does it for this part of little women um please uh let me know what you think if you have any comments on little women what was your experience reading this novel i i would love to hear about your your thoughts about it um but if not, that's okay. Just join me next time when I will look at the, the third hundred pages of Little Women, which will finish up part one and then begin part two, where these little women really do become full-blown women in the second part of the novel. So a lot more, it's a lot more plot driven in the second half. And for, you know, for me, it's a lot more fun, but you know, you kind of lose that kind of quaintness and episodic nature of the early part of the, the story. But anyways, it's still good stuff. So thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. But a golden cord is severed And our hopes in ruin lie We shall meet But we shall miss him There will be one vacant chair we shall linger too.